Have you ever experienced a traumatic situation and asked yourself, what good can come out of this? But then those very challenges and experience that appear very bad at first became later almost a blessing in disguise. Why does it happen? Can it happen every time? Or even can we make it happen almost on demand? Join us after the intro for a conversation with a special friend with whom we'll try and answer these and many more questions. Stay tuned. Do you feel stuck in your life? Do you feel unhappy but not completely sure what that is? Do you hold a grudge towards someone for something they did which affects you and the way you live your life? Have you ever told someone, I forgive you, but in reality you were not completely over what happened? Why is it so difficult to truly forgive? How do we forgive? And can anything and anyone be forgiven? Hi, my name is Rosanna D, and I'm the host of the Forgiven Tribe Show. This is a safe and not judgmental place for sharing opinions and challenging experiences where the practice of forgiveness helped individuals to get unstuck and create a much more fulfilling life than they had before. Join me in this exciting journey to unveil how you too can have the life you deserve. Simply click the subscribe button below to receive notification about future episodes. Welcome to the Forgiven Try Show. Traumatic events can shatter one's life, their fundamental assumptions about themselves, their sense of self-worth, and their beliefs about the world they live in. When this happens, we may be asking what good can come out of this? And yes, while we are facing that traumatic situation or in the immediate aftermath, it might appear that the answer is nothing. However, at some point, we will be able to reflect on what happened to us. And almost certainly, we come to the conclusion that perhaps some good has come along with the bad after all. A growing number of studies indicate that having to cope with trauma can result in post-traumatic growth, PTG. So today we want to understand more about PTG, what it is, and perhaps if it's possible to initiate that growth ahead of times, maybe even without the trauma. We talk about PTG with Stephen James, who is joining us from Hawaii, I believe. Stephen is a former Air Force officer, research program manager, and astrophysicist. I'm happy with many of the aspects of the military culture, and in particular the impact on service members' well-being, he decided to leave the Air Force to pursue a research career into how individuals and community cultures can be cultivated to empower people to achieve their fullest potentials. The result of this effort was an empirically grounded and evidence-based understanding of human growth that incorporates several decades of positive and humanistic motivational psychology. These insights were further tested and honed through his time as an educator and researcher at a school that was devoted to peace building. Stephen has an extensive experience and education in cultural change, human motivation, transformative education, personal growth, conflict resolution, as well as physical and social science research methods. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to the Forgiven Try Show. Thank you very much for being with us today. Hi, thank you for having me. So, Stephen, I always love to start knowing a little bit more about the person I'm talking with. Uh, I read some, uh, something about your, your bio, which is, uh, by the way, quite impressive. But I would like to know how your journey to start working and studying PTG really started. Yes, there's some things that are not in my bio there that really are what catalysted my movement into studying post-traumatic growth. Uh, as the bio says, I used to be an astrophysicist and now I'm a psychologist working on post-traumatic growth. So it's a, a very big difference between those two career fields, though they're both scientific in nature. Uh, they, my life took a, a very different direction than what I expected it to. From when I was very, very little, 
uh, my grandmother got me a little mobile set. It's not a mobile set, but a, a ceiling, 3D ceiling model of the solar system that was to scale in terms of planetary size and you spaced out them particular distances. And from that early age, I was just amazed at how, how vast the universe was. And so from the time I was five, I was like, I'm going to do astronomy. I'm going to be an astronomer. Um, and then by the time I was nine, I put my first book on quantum mechanics. I decided I wanted to be an astrophysicist in the Air Force when I was 10 years old. Then taught myself calculus when I was 13 to be able to do this little Microsoft Space Simulator program that came out that one year. And so I've always been on this avenue towards this scientific advancement. Uh, and I wanted to be in the Air Force because it was in the 90s when all of those TV shows about unsolved mysteries and sightings and all these conspiracy theories of the government keeping aliens and such from us. That's when uh, I was like, well, if there's alien conspiracy theories, I want to know about them, be a part of them. So I, I was like, that's the great place for me to go. I'll go in there, learn all the classified secrets of the government, and then be an astrophysicist. And that's what I worked towards, and, and I achieved my goal. I went to school for astrophysics and became an Air Force officer. Turns out no aliens, though, unfortunately. Um, so that's too bad, at least. Uh, but everything else was a lot of fun. I had amazing jobs working on satellite programs, running ground-based telescope observations. I had the opportunity to work with NASA on a number of occasions. I did experiments with astronauts while they were on the space shuttle um, and just had this amazing set of achievements by the time I was in my mid-20s and I had really made it. Uh, and I felt that life was really good, but that was until I was in my yeah, in my mid-20s, when I got a call that my niece had inexplicably fallen ill. And unfortunately, she was a little over two years old and died um, in a couple of days. And so from there, I remember going home with my brother from the hospital after she passed away. Uh, and I sat in the dark in his home. And I remember telling him, you know, this thing can ruin, ruin a, a marriage, a couple, if you guys don't try to cope with this together, him and his second wife at that point. And, and he said, yeah, I know, but, but I had to go back. I was in the Air Force. I wasn't stationed in my hometown. I was on the other side of the country, and I wasn't able to be there and be the support that I needed to be for him. And so... He, him and his wife did end up separating. And about a year after my niece died, um, he, he died as well um, in, in tragic grief and isolation. And I feel very responsible for that isolation. Uh, it was a time when I was still young and military culture. And I think this is pretty pervasive across the world. Um, but U.S. military culture in particular can be very um, destructive because it has this idea that when someone is down, kick them. That way they'll stand up stronger. You know, someone's showing weakness, push them. You know, and it's, it's really this idea of tough love taken to an extreme. And it's very destructive because what that means you're not doing is showing support and compassion. And it ends up isolating people. And not only did I do that, but I pushed my family to do that as well, saying like, this is the way we help him. Um, and so, you know, he, he died feeling alone. And that's a, you don't really get past that too much. So um, I took a lot of responsibility for that. And at the same time, my nephews who were young at this time, these were from my brother's first marriage, his two kids from his first marriage. They, um, they cut off contact with me as well because they were looking for someone to blame. They didn't know about how hard I was pushing my brother, but they were young and just wanted an explanation. And so I lost contact with them. And then about three months after that, my best friend from childhood was killed in a car accident. Uh, he was a firefighter. So it was just loss after loss after loss. And then a week after that, I was reassigned out here to Hawaii um, on Maui Island. 
to work on some telescope facilities out here. And that took me thousands and thousands of miles away from my remaining family and support network I had into a culture. It was very different than U.S. Hawaii, especially Outer Islands. Hawaii is not like U.S. culture. It's quite a bit different. Um, and so being out of my element, being isolated, alone myself, and grieving for all of this. And I tried to dive into my work. I was like, I'm at this station. I'm in Hawaii. I'm working on these giant telescopes. This is everything I've ever wanted. And I tried to dive into my work for a while, but eventually I snapped. And in a single day, I quit my PhD program in astrophysics and emailed my commander and said that I don't know how, but I'm going to get out of the Air Force at the earliest opportunity. Uh, this isn't the life for me. I don't think it ever was the right life for me. Something's wrong. And I had a lot of healing to do yet in terms of the grief, but having that freedom and realizing that there was a moment of clarity that I had, that there was a better place for me to be. And then I started working toward that. And that's when I discovered psychology. I discovered post-traumatic growth, um, reading a book, actually. I was in an airport. And when I discovered the PTG, when I was reading a book, um, I started crying in the airport, uh, which was fun for everyone around me, I'm sure. But that's when uh, I was like, I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to start studying post-traumatic growth because I want to know what's happening to me. In the months after all of this, I had, I had found a sense of peace and fulfillment that I had never experienced in my life. Despite all the accolades, all the goals I was achieving, working this hard life and getting there, I had never felt so tranquil as I did after this. I converted to Buddhism at this time and started practicing Buddhism. I started studying I'd always looked my whole life. I love Star Trek and sci-fi and, and all of those, all those shows. And, and my career was around astronomy. So I'd always looked to technology in the future for answers. And at the same time, I also started realizing that that wasn't the right place to be looking for everything. And I started looking backward and reading psychology and philosophy and theology and all the works from thousands of years past. And I just gained this sense of understanding self-understanding that was amazing. And I wanted to go back to school to understand what had happened. And particularly, why did it have to take that type of trauma and loss? And does it have to? Is there another way to get there? And that's what I worked on for my PhD for seven years in total, I think. And then uh, I later implemented that into schools and, and in both in direct courses and in school culture changes. And then I moved into doing it as a private practice for individuals and families and communities. Wow, this is uh, some kind of uh, story. First of all, let me say I'm, I'm truly sorry uh, of these experiences that you, you went through in your life. But sometimes it, it does take some tough experiences to realize that perhaps the path you, you are in is not the one you were meant to be. And there is something better, perhaps, uh, that is waiting somewhere else. So it's an incredible, incredible journey. Can we start first and foremost defining exactly what PTG is? I think a lot of people and uh, most of the listeners perhaps are uh, familiar with, I don't know, PTSD, uh, like uh, uh, an acronym. Uh, so the, the, the stress part, the anxiety or the depression that comes from trauma. But the growth is uh, perhaps a concept that not everybody understands, apart from, from the name in itself. But what exactly is PTG? Yes. Post-traumatic growth, uh, there are some clinical definitions for it. It's, that's primarily where it's studied at. But it, to, to kind of summarize what this is, it's a process that we all go through, that, when we have, that we may go through when we have trauma. And it's somewhat self-explanatory in the definition, but there are some very important caveats that need to be understood in, in what it actually is. So when we go through a trauma, and oftentimes those traumas are death-related, but they don't have to, right? Trauma doesn't just take the form of some severe loss that's unrepairable. They, loss takes many forms. Losing, losing a job you thought was gonna last forever, right? Um, going through a divorce, um, you know, it, uh, a bad breakup can all be losses and they can all be traumatic in their own way. 
And one of those things I think is important to note when you're talking about any sort of trauma, much less how it relates to post-traumatic growth, is that you can't, traumas are not comparable. And we shouldn't try to compare our own traumas to other people's. Just because we go, oh my God, that person just lost six people in their family in one day. Uh, you know, my problems, my traumas are nothing compared to that. No, they still are to you. Um, and they can still have that same type of dramatic effect both ways, toward a PTSD kind of side or toward a PTG kind of side. So let them be what they are um, is, is one thing in understanding post-traumatic growth. So whatever the trauma is, it leads into a dual process. And that dual process on one end is the healing from the trauma. Whatever that, that grief or that sadness or the depression is coming from, there's healing that occurs there. There's also the other side, which may be the growth. And these things happen in parallel with each other at the same time. That's what makes it such a wonderful thing and such a terrible thing is that when we're going through that healing process, a lot of times it's really hard to maintain our lives, uh, pay bills, take care of our family, do all of these things. And, and in, in many respects, we can't when we're trying to go through this. And at the same time, though, we're also learning to have these moments of clarity and growth as we're going through. And what that growth leads to, so what, post -tra what, the, what is the growth in post-traumatic growth, um, is it's, it's substantial changes in values, beliefs, personality, uh, and behavior. So this is not simply a better outlook on life. It is much deeper than that. Substantial changes to personality. Uh, and that's one of the amazing things with post-traumatic growth is it, is it shows things that have been entrenched maybe for decades in who you are get uprooted in this. And it gives you an opportunity to reforge those elements in a way that's much healthier for you as a unique individual. So can we say that it's uh, going backward in your evolution and becoming more aligned with the original values perhaps that you had before you had all the imprinting uh, from your family, your uh, society, school and whatever? Yes, there is. The way I try to explain this to most people is we all have intrinsic motivations, things that are uniquely internal to us. And these are not talents. Uh, I, I always have to clarify that there's no such thing as natural talent. Unless you're, unless you're talking about basketball where someone's taller or shorter than someone else, when it comes to raw talent, people are not born with more talent. What we're born with that's unique is our intrinsic motivations. Those things that we're all driven to, even though we know we have to get up at six o'clock the next morning, we stay up until two o'clock anyway doing it just because we enjoy it. Uh, there's not necessarily an inherent result or benefit from doing it. We just really like being in those, being in that zone. And it can often cause flow in, 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 as another concept. But from a very early age, we're drawn towards doing certain things more than others. And from the time we're little babies, that, that starts to reinforce what we like and what we're good at as we build those talents. Um, and sometimes they're very subtle in terms of what those behaviors are. So those intrinsic talents, as we get older, get lost with, um, as you said, imprinting. Um, and we start to get distracted by what those intrinsic motivations are and other things take over. In my case, I can give a, a fantastic example of this. Once I had gone through my military training program, which was all of college, I went through what they call ROTC. So it's a, a dual program with your college and military training. By the time I had gotten to the end of that, I had been convinced that I wanted to be a lifetime military officer and I was going to reach these high ranks of colonel and general and get all this responsibility and, and take command. And, and it's a big sacrifice, but it's worth it because I'm taking on all charge of all of this and be able to affect all this change in the military and the country. Uh, and that was kind of a driving motivation. In fact, I believe still that's the driving motivation they want most officers to have. After I went through my experience and I wanted to leave and I was able to articulate what was wrong, 
I had looked at those colonels and generals and been like, wow, look at that guy with all that power and responsibility. I'm going to be like that one day. But afterward, I looked at those same people. And what I saw was someone that worked seven days a week, had three different cell phones, uh, barely ever saw their family, went gray by the time they were 40. And I was like, so you're telling me if I put in all the extra time working 14 hour days, six days a week, that's my reward? Uh, no, I don't think so. I'm out. So it's the same situation, but the viewpoint and, and the motivation is totally different. Uh, and that's just a, a small example of how that can really shift in this process. So how common is uh, post-traumatic growth? Is this something that everybody can experience after a, a trauma? Yes, I think at some point, not every trauma, not every trauma leads to post-traumatic growth, um, and not every trauma also leads to PTSD either. You can have a trauma and a loss that doesn't result in either, um, in which case we just come back to a point of stability of where we were before it happened. So there's no guarantee that either one's going to happen, but I would say that post-traumatic growth is extremely common. In fact, for most of us, at some point in one of our traumas in our lives, we will experience that growth. And that's built into human understanding going back thousands of years. We know that our hardest times in life are the ones that push us to grow the most. That's just kind of a common understanding we all have. But the idea that it's not just a common cliche or a stereotype that we see, uh, an archetype that we see in movie plot lines, but it's really a phenomenon that exists in everyone's life at some point, is it's comforting. Uh, in fact, that's what actually made me start to cry in that airport when I read that book was I was going through post-traumatic growth and to recognize that not only is it a, a common thing, it's so common that it, there's a term for it and it's studied by psychologists. That g- gave me a lot of comfort. Are there challenges or perhaps obstacles that can prevent someone to, to go into this uh, uh, post-traumatic growth phase? Yes. Now, I don't know how it is in the UK, but in the last couple of years, there has been this rise in talking about resilience. Everybody needs to be more resilient. And in its base, in the actual psychological research, resilience is is a very good thing uh, in the way it's determined. But the way it's been implemented and interpreted by the public and, and all of these programs is very detrimental to the idea of growth. And this comes from the need to fall apart and be weak. When we talk about post-traumatic growth, they are, it's such fundamental change in the person that we are. Like I said, behavior, personality, values, they all shift. And it's kind of counter to resilience because what that requires is for us to essentially give up on the person we have been. We have to allow ourselves to fall apart and say, I don't know who I am, I don't know who I want around me, where I belong, what my purpose is, everything I've been doing in my life isn't right. I need to quit it all and start over. Um, And I'm using the word quit just to be kind of to exaggerate the point, but we need to leave behind what we've been and that it means being weak and falling apart. That's not a bad thing uh, if it's leading toward a growth that's going to be more intrinsic and authentic to the people we are. And there is research in post-traumatic growth on this that People that cling on to that former self experience the least amount of growth, if any, because there's, we have a limited window as well. When you go through post-traumatic growth, it's not like, okay, I've gone through a trauma experience. I now have the rest of my life to make these changes. If you don't make any changes and you just hold on and hold on, then eventually that window where you can see clearly the direction fades and you go back to what was your old life. So there are definitely obstacles in that process that can restrict us if we're not open to the process. It's very interesting what you're saying. And um, having gone through different types of trauma myself, and the last is, uh, the latest is uh, a burnout. I always say that to come out of that situation, I had to quote unquote, kill myself. So kill the former self, the, the person I used to be in order to reemerge on the other side in, in a different way. So I couldn't uh, simply go back. Um, there is something even more interesting that, that you mentioned. And I seem to understand that 
one has to intentionally choose and undertake uh, the journey. Am I correct? Yes and no. Um, there's, there's a little bit of both in there, right? When we're in the middle of this, this is true of uh, anyone, even someone knowledgeable about post-traumatic growth, any problems or traumas I've experienced since, we're still subjectively involved in it. Even when you talk to, you know, therapists need therapists as well because they go through this. When we're in the middle of something, even if we know about it, we don't necessarily have that conscious will to control the process. And so the willful part of it isn't, oh, okay, this is post-traumatic growth. I am now losing my former self. I am now going to grow. It's not quite that, that cognitive, right? We just experience things. But the way I would describe this as is if you do hit this point uh, where you have a trauma and you have this moment, this time when you can go through post-traumatic growth, there is often a, a point in time, a singular point in time that I call a moment of clarity. Moment of clarities are rare in life, and when you have them, you need to act on them. So it's, it's, it's an emotion, it's a feeling that you get, but it's that thing where you, it's that feeling where you go, oh my God, I can finally see myself, my place in the world, everything is clear, and I need to go do this. When you have that moment of clarity, that emotional feeling, acting on it is incredibly important. That's troubling in certain ways because if you act on that, you're going to be the, the support network you have may say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, I know you just went through this. So maybe you're being a little irrational and just take a couple months, take a couple weeks and think about what you're going to do. You can't change your whole life and quit on all the goals you've already had to go do this crazy other thing. That's, that is likely horrible advice. If you actually are having a moment of clarity in post-traumatic growth, that is the time to act and make changes because that's right at the start of the window of time that you have. So it is willful in that you have to choose to engage with that moment of clarity, but it's not that you're cognitively saying like, oh, this is the thing I heard about in that podcast. Now is the time to do it. It's just going to be an urge and a feeling to go in a different direction. And you want to follow those feelings. I love what you're, what you're saying. And I, I kept uh, nodding all the way because that was exactly my experience. I had people around me say, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, it, it felt for them perhaps that I was crazier, quote unquote, during that moment than uh, I could have been earlier on. So uh, I, I can see uh, my, my journey in what you are saying. You mentioned this uh, uh, very uh, precise moment in time. And I'm curious to know, is there... In, in that journey that takes you from trauma to growth, are there different phases or is just the before and after that, that moment? And if there are different phases that we can recognize, what are they? I don't know that I've ever seen anything that breaks down into phases, but there is a general progression in post-traumatic growth. Initially, when we're experiencing trauma, like I said, you have two pathways that are going at the same time, healing from the trauma and then the growth. The, the trauma itself and going through that healing actually opens us up to our intrinsic selves in a better way of being. It's actually how we open up, but that does take a little bit of time. That initial moment of clarity that we have is just kind of the beginning point of where things come from. Once we hit there, and that's usually after a very resistant period of time when we try to ignore what's happening uh, until we hit something that just knocks us off. So in my example, I said that I tried to dive hard into my work. I think that's a lot of people's defense mechanism. It, rather than engaging with this is to say, all right, well, I can just focus on my work more and do that. So there's this, you might not have this period of time, but there can be a protracted period of time where we try to find ways to ignore what we're going through. And that's just because facing it is painful. Um, and humans are very good at avoiding pain. So... Uh, eventually we're forced into a point where we have to deal with it. And that's when we have that moment of clarity. And at that point, clinically, there's, it's very common for people that go through post-traumatic growth to have a redefinition where they say there's a before self and an after self. And that moment of clarity is often, is typically where uh, post-traumatic growth flourishers define where that new self began is from that point. 
but it really is just a starting place in which we're still healing, we're still grieving from whatever our, our loss was or our trauma. And we have ruminating thoughts. And those ruminating thoughts can be very negative and self-destructive. We can get caught in them. That's the whole idea of ruminating in thoughts. And we can get stuck cycling over and over again, like, well, what if I had done this? And what if this had gone different? And where? what if this happens in the future and I make this choice? Those are often very unhelpful and destructive in nature. But over time, as the growth starts to uh, overshadow the grief and the loss, as we, as we have the healing process occurring, that's when those ruminating thoughts become more directed and more purposeful, saying like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to do what ifs anymore. And I'm going to focus on I'm starting to see that I have this, this new direction that I really want to go in and I'm going to start reading and studying or, or practicing this thing here. And I wonder where that's going to lead me and, and how am I going to expand on that? So there's a transition from essentially self-restrictive and ruminating thoughts to more purposeful and driven thinking over time. And we have to be patient with that process as well, because again, we're just confronting the pain right then of whatever our trauma is. But over the course of months, and I know we hate to hear that months, right? But months, maybe even a year or two, right? As we're going through this, there's no clear timeline for the length of time this can take. Uh, and so as horrible as it is to have to go through this, we have to allow time for that process to happen with hope. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoy talking about this publicly is because if you know that there's the potential for growth after all of this, then it makes the pain just a little bit more bearable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Stephen, we mentioned already the fact that people around us might not be happy or perhaps might not recognize the, uh, the importance of, of the moment that we are going through in, uh, in that growth. So can we talk a little bit more about the role of the environment where, where we are and where um, we are trying to, to go through this uh, post-traumatic growth and the role of the people around us in, uh, in that environment? Of course. It looks like from the outside and everything I've said right now that post-traumatic growth is a very internal process and we're just going through it inside. But humans are social creatures. And it wasn't really until I was going through my psychology degree that I realized how true that was. We are dependent and always will be dependent and should be dependent on our environment and our community. That's not a bad thing to be engaged and, and integrated with our community. We need that to thrive. What can go wrong in that is when we have communities, and I'm using communities very broadly here to mean many different levels. This could be your immediate family, it could be your school, your work environment, it could be your national culture, right? It can take many different levels when we say community. But when that community isn't supportive of those intrinsic motivations that are a part of you, or you just get the perception that they might not, then we might go down a different track. And we can be influenced by outside forces in that community that put us on a wheel that we don't really want to be on. And what I mean by that is, we get socialized and indoctrinated into value systems that aren't intrinsically meaningful to us, but they're praised by the people around us. So when we're growing up, and classic example, the very, very classic example is, is a family structure that, you know, you want to be an artist and your family goes, no, 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 you'll never make any money being an artist, be a doctor, right? Very simple, classic example. It's much more complex than just that simple case, and it occurs in many different forms. But we are all socialized into value systems when we're younger um, that we don't necessarily have the cognitive ability to question them when we're young. It's not until we start to get into teenage years that we're actually able to, to say, hey, wait, is this value right? But unfortunately, because we've been socialized and indoctrinated so much on these value systems that they become internalized. And so we never know to ask those questions in the first place. Who am I really? If you take away all these things that everybody thinks I ought to be, or the goals I ought to be striving for, what's left? And that in and of itself is a very scary thing because 
It's a self-confrontation that most of us never have until we go through trauma. And having a community that either we have the perception of or actually it does say, hey, if you want to be a part of our community, you're going to follow these rules and these guidelines. And if you don't, you're out or you're ostracized or you'll be un unloved, right? That's what gets us in the trap because then we conform ourselves to that because we need a community. We can't be alone. And so we're going to internalize the value system that's going to keep that acceptance for us. Conversely, if we have communities that go, hey, you know what? You might be unique and totally different than everybody else. Go explore that and we'll support you and see where that goes. That leads to a much healthier way of being and allows us to explore those intrinsic motivations. When we go through post-traumatic growth, there's a shift that actually makes us forcibly have to look at what those internalized values have been. Wait, why have I been doing this for so long? Oh, it's because I wanted to please these people or I wanted to be accepted by this group. And instead, if that's not the case, and this is where the purposeful thoughts come in. So our purposeful thoughts then go, wait, if that's not, if I've been doing all this for the wrong reasons, then what are the reasons I should be doing things? And that gives us the opportunity to not just transform ourselves and our values, but to also make changes in our environment and our communities even that we are in so that they are more supportive of who we want to be. As a final point to that, though, I want to add that sometimes and oftentimes, I think the result of understanding of, of making those changes is that the things we thought we had to do to be accepted were just things that we perceived. Our community was always there and would have always been intrinsic, that would have always been supporting of our pursuits. We just got into the habit of thinking that they wouldn't. Stephen, you are um, trying to push this concept of uh, post-traumatic growth in schools, working with children and uh, young adults. And you mentioned, for example, teenagers in uh, just a moment ago. So can we explain a little bit more uh, about this, uh, this project that you have, this idea that you have? In particular, I'm interested to the possibility of having this growth without the trauma. Is it possible? And if so, what should we do, especially with our, our children? There are a couple of things. So the answer flatly is yes. Yes, you can gain this growth without needing trauma. So it's a process that everybody can go through no matter what stage of life you're at. Now, it can be more poignant and effective if we're doing it when we do have some sort of, sort of transition or change in our life that's very unsettling. That can be helpful, but it doesn't have to even be to the degree of a trauma um, or anything like that. We just need to be aware of what it is. So this is what I this is specifically what I studied uh, at the in my PhD program and what I continued to research afterward and what I've been doing for how long has it been now? 12, maybe 12 or 13 years I've been doing this. And if we can understand what the post-traumatic growth process is, like what what are the what are the there's not exactly stages, but what's the process and the way people go through this and look at those snapshot in time across a wide swath of people. You know, what is everybody experiencing? What are they going through? What are those changes? Then we can dissect that process and say, all right, here's what's actually causing the change. And then say, well, all right, let's give that to people in a way that's not traumatic so that we can initiate that same type of growth. So when you are initiating uh, a PTG process, which is no longer a PTG process, it's just a growth process now. Uh, the way I like to describe this is with an analogy. What has to be done in this process is imagine that everything that you are, your values, your beliefs, your goals, all sit behind a giant castle wall. And that castle wall represents your worldview defense is the proper term. Everything that we need to protect ourselves and what we believe and think and our identity. When someone approaches that and goes, hey, let's reevaluate this. Let's look at things a different way. We react defensively to that to protect our identity and who we are. And this is often where political discourse goes awry is rather than engaging in an in a equitable conversation, we react defensively because someone is telling us that the way we've been thinking, the way we've been living is wrong. And 
that causes a, a biological defensive reaction in us that's similar to as if we were being physically threatened. And we have that defense mechanism that then when we say, all right, well, I'm going to put archers on top of my wall now and, and threaten you to leave and say, get out of here. I'm going to protect what's behind my wall. When we go through post-traumatic growth, it's like a giant meteor from space hurtling in at 50,000 miles an hour uh, that crashes through our wall and obliterates into tiny pieces. As we said, that type of trauma, typically we're adults now and we're there trying to pick up the pieces and still live a life and, and go through all of this pain, which isn't good. So what a process looks like that just initiates that same growth is we still, we want to bring down that wall but we don't want to shatter it to pieces. So you're sitting there saying, well, what do I do now? So if we initiate a whole bunch of mini earthquakes underneath of that wall so that we erode the foundation of it instead, then the wall can come down more naturally over time. And while we're doing that, we engage in a process that helps build something that's healthier, that's more fluid, like a nice picket fence with a little door on the front. Still have a boundary, we still have our identity, but it's more fluid and flexible and more akin to our intrinsic selves. We can get behind that wall and reevaluate things. So we avoid the defensiveness, but we also avoid the trauma of obliterating the whole wall. So the proper term for those little mini earthquakes is called disorienting dilemmas. That comes from a, something called transformative learning theory. Uh, and when we initiate those little, little walls, it puts us in a position where we can start to reevaluate ourselves, our behaviors, and our personality in ways that are similar to post-traumatic growth. Since we're now doing these little mini earthquakes instead, it occurs over a much longer period of time. It's not an instant or a couple of days of trauma, and it needs to be a guided process as we're going through. But it's very much possible. I will say that in the schools that I work in, one important note uh, in terms of what we can do to facilitate that with our children is this process of reevaluation. All of us are going to be, no matter what we do or how open we want to be as parents or, or caretakers, we cannot avoid socializing and indoctrinating children into a value system. That's not, what's, that's not something that, that's not wrong. Um, in fact, that needs to happen. But once children are no longer children or adolescents, this is a different phase of life. In fact, it's neurologically a different phase of life. We now have the capacity to have complex abstract thoughts starting around when we're teenagers. And that's when we can start to evaluate some of these paradigms and understand how to ask those deeper questions. And so getting in teenage years, the ability to or teaching the ability to ask those more fundamental questions and to question social norms, that's very important as well. Who am I? Where do I belong in society? And why is society structured this way? When I advocate this and when I teach this, history is actually a big part of this. It's not just psychology. We actually have to look back and see, well, what are the roots of these social norms? Where do they come from? How did things get to be like this? And do they have to be like this? Prior to adolescent years, or I'll stay on adolescence for just a moment. So we want to help question social norms. We want to help ask questions about what teenagers really want for themselves being supportive in that in a way that doesn't make them feel like they need to conform to a particular way of being, and then pushing them to experience different things. Now, this shouldn't typically be an issue for most teenagers, but it is for some. Exploring the world is extremely important. Sitting and just reading about something or having an, uh, your teenager say, all right, well, I'm safe in my bubble here. I've decided that this is the bounds of who I am and what I like. Uh, we actually all do this at certain points in our life, but it's, it's not a good thing to do. To say, all right, I've figured myself out. Now here are the bounds, and I'm never going to step outside my boundaries because I'm comfortable here. That's not a good way to gain growth. In fact, we can't grow if we stay within a safety bubble. So pushing, pushing children and adolescents to step outside of whatever they deem as their comfort zone is very important for growth. So those aspects. When children are younger than that, um, we can't do abstract questioning of social norms and things like that. We're just acquiring values. So giving value systems to your children that are based on unconditional love and acceptance, right? I'm, you know, 
we're, we're your family, we're here to support you, you go explore, and then pushing your children to explore different things that maybe they're not totally comfortable with, things they want to do, but also maybe things that they're not comfortable with helps establish that foundation that's going to make it easier to do that questioning later. I love what you're saying about the questioning, the no. And it reminds me, in fact, of another episode where I interviewed a guest from India. And it was uh, talking about uh, the way the, the school is structured there and uh, uh, the fact that teenagers, they have this time while they are studying where they intentionally question everything that they, they are learning and they, they talk and they discuss about this knowledge and this information uh, with their mentors. This is not typical of the school. Um, I'm Italian originally, and uh, I never really had anything like that. So how the school system has to change to embrace something like that? Because we have growth in the school system, but we don't pay enough attention perhaps to, to these aspects. Am I right or do I? Yes, very much so. Uh, it's built into the fabric of modern education to be hierarchical in its structure, to be, here's the boss, you're the underling, you're gonna learn what we tell you, um, which is a fascinating structure for school systems that, you know, the US and the UK as democratic countries, we have school systems that are as non-democratic as you can get. Uh, there's, there's no allowance for that questioning or for the revision that's gonna help from a, from a bottom-up standpoint. That's not a good way to train people to be citizens in a democracy, but that's a different conversation. Uh, the, but that same structure that's very hierarchical needs to allow, there needs to be a transformation of school systems that have that questioning built in. When I was an educator, on the first day, whenever I'd have a new class of students, I would tell them, number one, first most important rule is never trust anything I say. In fact, never trust anyone in any position of authority ever tells you verify and react. In fact, I promised them that I would lie to them 10% of the time. Uh, and so it's up to them to figure out where it is. Because I didn't want my students taking what I said at face value. I wanted them to question. And part of the scaffolded curriculums I instituted often involve teaching students how to question. Now, we just say, oftentimes we forget about the skills-based part of a lot of those, we say, all right, you have to question the world around you. You have to go out this. But for many of us, including well into adulthood, because we've been on this, this wheel of socialized indoctrination for so long, when we hit that point where we finally are able to question, we might not know how to. And so early on, when I, do, when I did have uh, access and as an educator to students and teach classes, I'd teach courses like examining truth. Um, and moral philosophy and, and things like that that would really get at how do we question our world in effective ways? And so it is fundamental. In fact, that often came, I believe that those skills need to come before you can even engage in this, this uh, mini earthquake disorienting dilemma thing. You wanna have those skills up front when you're going into starting to cause those disturbances in a person's defense wall you want them to already be armed with those skills of question. And that can't happen unless you have school systems that take questioning as fundamental to what they are doing. Um, and unfortunately, we've moved, I think, more towards school systems that discourage questioning. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, um, unfortunately. There is also another aspect uh, that actually where you were uh, talking uh, came to mind is that as adults, we are often uh, affected by beliefs that might be disempowering. So when we are educating uh, our children and, and teenagers, uh, perhaps that is, uh, is, is something that we pass on. So is it a journey for us first to start questioning what uh, our beliefs are before we can uh, teach our children and our teenagers to, to question everything that they learn. Yes. I think that we do need to have a good sense of where this is going. Um, teaching children and adolescents to, to do this shouldn't, and I'm not, I don't necessarily think it could be something you could just open up a textbook and say, all right, we're going to do step one, step two, step three. 
there has to be a certain amount of lived experience in there in having gone through a type of this transition and, and looking internally in ourselves to be able to help them because we learn best through stories. Uh, yeah, again, another thing that maybe the schools mod modernly don't do as well is, is incorporating stories into how we learn. And we can watch stories on TV and movies, and they can be very, very impactful and very emotional at times. Yeah, even when you have, you know, some TED Talks are extremely emotional and people telling their life stories uh, in these true stories. But the most impactful stories people are going to have that you can uh, teach adolescents and, and children with are your own. And so you need to have those stories available to teach with. That said, oftentimes teaching something is how we learn the best. And we are always an ongoing project. The idea that even if you've gone through the most amazing post-traumatic growth ever, that somehow you've truly, truly gotten to a point that you just live completely authentically and intrinsically is never going to be the case. There's always a work in progress that we're stepping toward in, in gaining better self-understanding. And at the same time, we're also constantly being influenced by things that are going to re-indoctrinate us into ways of being that maybe aren't good for us, even as adults. It just doesn't have as children. Those influences are always around us. So teaching this to your children, even though maybe we're not 100% there ourselves, is going to help us get to a better place as well, because it's going to force us into a position that we're going to reflect on it. Because we don't want to be telling something to our children that we're not also trying to live ourselves. Thinking about this uh, uh, continuous uh, process of growth, is there uh, some sort of growth routine that we can pick up and apply to our life that can support and sustain that process? I don't know if it makes sense as a question. But... Uh, I, yeah, the question makes sense a lot. I think that there's no specific set of activities that we need to do to 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 sustain this, we do want to sustain it and we can lose it. I think that's important to note is if, if we don't, after we have this growth, if we don't have a routine that actively maintains it, we can lose it. So we need to focus on trying to do that. So your question is very poignant. How to do that is a little different for each person is going to be dependent on who that intrinsic person is. However, there are some things that might be common across the board. I would recommend meditation as a regular habit. And there are reasons for that, neurological reasons and, and psychological reasons, because as we meditate, it actually allows us to, a couple of things, to become more presently focused on what's happening now. And one of the ways in which we're often internalized, uh, we internalize negative value systems that aren't good for us is attachments to what those things are gonna bring us in the future, whether it be wealth or status or prestige. When we can bring ourselves into the present moment, we can detach ourselves from those goals, which allows us to more effectively reevaluate those value systems so that we can be more intrinsic in what we're doing. The other benefit of regular meditation is it, it lowers our emotional noise level. So imagine an audio system that's showing uh, the, the noise level in the room and it's going up and down and fluctuating and occasionally you'll see a spike of, of sound come up above that noise. But that noise level can be so high that we can't see all of the little sounds that are going on beneath it. And we need to bring down that noise level so we can actually see what's going on at that lower level. And in that lower level is often where our greatest revelations are going to come about ourselves. But if our noise level is super high, and that can happen through a number of different ways, but when our noise level is high, we can't see ourselves. We can't see our emotional states. We can't see what we're feeling and what we're valuing. So there's benefits to meditation regularly. A second thing you can do is don't get complacent. Um, I know that's easier said than done, but what I mean by that is intentionally put yourself in uncomfortable situations that, that are going to push you beyond where you're normally used to being. Uh, take up a hobby you're not good at. Go into a social situation that you're not really familiar with. Go, go on a vacation, a long vacation to a culture that's vastly different than your own. These type of new experiences, and I mean, even if you're 60 or 70 years old, you should still be doing this. It gets harder as we get older because we get into such a, a rut in, in how we run our lives, but we need to keep changing it up. Because as I said, when you stay in your bubble of comfort, that's when we stop growing. 
And that's when we start to re-internalize a lot of those negative beliefs or, or they become harder in what they're doing. So I would say those two things are probably the biggest routines that we can do. Stephen, I, I could talk about growth uh, until next week. Um, there is one uh, aspect that I'm really curious about uh, when it comes to growth, and uh, growth after a collective trauma. Up to now, we talk about the trauma of a, an individual. But um, in the last couple of years, uh, we experienced the pandemic globally, so uh, everybody uh, has been going through uh, a traumatic situation with that. In Europe, we have right now uh, an ongoing war that is affecting a lot of people. So can we apply this uh, uh, post-traumatic growth also to collective trauma? I believe it's possible, um, but I think it's rare in the way it happens when we have collective trauma, right? There's a whole other half of this I haven't spoken about that's, that's kind of a negative turn on all of this called terror management theory. And it's far more, too much to get into with this. But one of the reactions we can often have to threatening situations, things that threaten, particularly if they're existential in nature, when they threaten our life in some way, even symbolic. Um, if we see death happening somewhere else, if we see people dying um, in the case of the pandemic and in the war, there's a reactivity that we can have in which we actually bolster that defense wall instead because it provides us more security in what we're doing. And we can collectively do that as well. So it can be good in some ways because it creates a sense of unity among a group, right? Um, all right, we're going to come together here. We have this common set of values. We're going to pull together on this. But it can also go to a very extreme degree in which it's exclusionary, where we say, all right, this is our group. This is our value system. And anyone that doesn't have our value system is the bad guy. And we see this reaction often. And 9-11... Uh, in the U.S., 9-11 was a very good example where you had people rallying around symbols and becoming very hostily defensive um, in reaction to what happened um, toward people that were often different than they felt that they were. So there can be a negative side of this as well. So that's something to be aware of. And this is particularly when we're talking about collective trauma. However, yes, if you have an underlying value system, as I said, when we teach children. So I think the lessons of parenting can be applied culturally as well. If you have an underlying cultural system in which those shared values are inclusiveness and empathy and stepping out to take new adventures and new risks, if that's the value system of your culture, then those are the things that are going to get bolstered when we go through this. And that can actually be very enhancing to the growth process. But that has to be the underpinning of the culture. That would be my instinct on that. Thank you. Thank you for this. You mentioned before, for example, talking about uh, PTG, the importance of uh, things like compassion. I would like to ask you about forgiveness. You know, this uh, podcast is called Forgiven Tribe. And the name came to me from the process I went through. So first and foremost, what you think about forgiveness uh, and self-forgiveness, and is there a role for that into overcoming trauma and undertaking a growth journey? Yes, very much so. Not all traumas, but I would say most at some point revolve around us believing that we're the central focal point of why the trauma occurred. If I had done this different, the situation would have ended. Even if it was something that just happened to us, uh, there's just kind of this innate human reaction to try to put ourselves at the center of the cause of things. And there may be a little bit of truth or, or not to that at all. Like I said, sometimes it's just things that happen to us, but we still take on blame for that. And we say, it's my fault if I had just done this differently. I did that with my brother when he died. I took on a lot of responsibility and said that, that you know, this is my fault if I had just been more compassionate. But being able to get past that and say, these things happened, there's no, but there's no chance for what ifs. And I have to forgive to move on. I have to forgive myself to get past this. Um, or recognize that I was never really the cause of it in the first place, which I think is more common, right? 
it should, should be what we go with. Like, yes, maybe I did make bad decisions, but I didn't really ever want this to be the outcome. I didn't really ever want this to happen. Um, so there's, you know, each trauma is unique to itself and there's different ways, but I think self-forgiveness is very important, whether or not we really do need to forgive ourselves or just to recognize that we never had to blame ourselves in the first place. Because until we do, it's like a ship anchor that just clings to a certain spot in time. And we can power that engine on the ship as much as we want to move forward until we can release that anchor. We're kind of stuck just, just treading water in one spot. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, Stephen, I would like to come back to you to finish uh, this interview. What do you have in the pipeline right now? What are you working on? Uh, yes. Right now I'm working on, um, I'm writing two books currently. Uh, one is on secular, secular spirituality. Um, how can we develop our spiritual selves and how can that come from a place that's not necessarily religiously based? Um, you know, cause that's, that's my journey as well. Even though I practice Buddhism, I come from a secular standpoint. Like there, this is a concept we can have. Um, I'm writing a book specifically also about post-traumatic growth and how we can gain it without needing the trauma. Um, I'm also writing a paper right now on expanding the definition of violence to include um, a more robust understanding of human traumas uh, that come in. I would say the big thing that people are going to see most upfront in the coming days and months is I, in my private practice, I am making a push to, to build up and, and make a launch of, of a group class where we're going to learn about all these concepts, learn and implement. So when we say learn, oftentimes we think about learning as As again, we're indoctrinating to think that means sitting in death, writing, uh, taking tests and doing this, but learning occurs every day in what we're doing. And we can learn how to gain this growth, how to be better people and learn about the psychology of all this. I was shocked to find out that, that psychology studies happiness and beauty and compassion. And it's been doing it for decades. It's just not in the public. When we think of psychology, we think of disorders and pathologies and everything wrong with people. But for 30 years, we've been studying everything that's right with people, and we're coming to amazing conclusions. And we can use words like transcendence and awakening and, and meaning and fulfillment in ways that have real grounded psychological understanding and gain better pathways for ourselves in that. So part of what I'm working on people are going to see in the near future are is classes specifically tuned to, to achieve that to achieve that growth in ourselves and learn the psychology all at the same time. And if our listeners want to know more about this, where they can uh, find this information? Uh, yes, you can actually sign up for it already right on my website at humanity-consulting.org. Um, and it's right up there to sign up. I'm currently revamping the website a little bit, but the, the sign up page is still right there if you want to check it out or just read a little bit more about what's involved in that, in that class. Fantastic. Uh, we will put all this information and all the links in the description of today's episode. Stephen, before going, the last question. If there was just one take-home message that you would love everybody to remember from this conversation, what that would be? It would be to always keep in the forefront of your mind and recognize that you can be more than you are today. Even if you think life is great, Even if you think you're great, you can even be greater. There's, there's an intrinsic self in you that can truly achieve anything, but you have to push yourself outside of that comfort zone to get there. I love it. Well, I hope that this episode has provided food for thoughts on how we can all undertake a growth journey and leave the trauma behind. I want to leave you with a quote from Viktor Frankl, who said, in some ways, Suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us, for accepting our invitation and sharing so much from a personal point of view and a research point of view as well. Thank you very much. This was a wonderful time. Thank you. Well, we would like to know what you think about this topic and if there are specific struggles that you have, that you are facing and we didn't address today, get in touch, let us know. Also, don't forget to visit Stephen Page. We will put all the links and the social media handles as well in the description of today's episode. 
Finally, if you have been affected in any way by the topic we discussed today, as always, I invite you to seek professional help. Join me next time when we will continue exploring inspiring and challenging situations. Because remember, we are together in this journey. Remember, forgiveness is like a muscle. The more you practice, the stronger and more effective it becomes. If you haven't done it yet, you can subscribe by clicking the subscribe button below. If you know anybody who could benefit from the topics discussed in this show, do some good and share the link with them. If you have a story that you want to share with us, comments or suggestions on topics you would like to be explored, send me an email at forgiventrive at gmail.com. Reviews will also be very much appreciated. And with this, it's a wrap. Till next time, thank you and goodbye.